But right now, um, Karen, who's actually one of our ex-members, is going to come and read the Bible for us. Thank you. Uh, This morning, we are reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. So in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All right, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor here. It's so good to have you with us for our 10th anniversary. And I'm not a very touchy-feely person normally, and one member particularly knows that and makes an effort to come and hug me every time. Thank you, Ryan. But, uh, but even I just can't stop hugging people. It's been a great uh, time just to catch up with past members um, and to, um, to celebrate what God's been doing in our church community. And if this is also your first week at church ever or at our church in particular it's so good that you could be here i realize this feels a bit different to normal weeks um, but it's a great chance to see what jesus church is about Um, because really when we started city light we wanted it to be about jesus it wasn't that when we started city light we thought look no one in this city knows how to do church we're going to step out there and 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 do church like no one has ever done it before and this city really needs us look there may have been just a slight touch of that, but that, we, grew, we outgrew that pretty quickly. But the heart of the beginning, when, when Gavin, Katie called Mel and I over and said, hey, look, we think God's putting in our heart to plant a church, so you guys in, and when we gathered the core team, and for all the members who've joined since, the one heart was all about Jesus, that we'd experienced his transforming grace, that we'd had our lives turned around, and we felt the call to tell others about him and to be his witnesses, as we're called in this passage, And for others to experience his goodness and for Jesus to be worshipped as he deserves because he is so good and so worthy. And so I think the best thing about City Light is not so much the ways that we've changed, but the ways that we haven't changed. A lot has changed. We've changed members, we've changed size, we've changed buildings, we've changed senior pastors just once, obviously over this period. But there is one thing that hasn't changed and the drum that we keep beating is that it's about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus the whole way through. We want to see people experience his life-transforming grace. We believe life is about Jesus. We believe that all of life's deepest questions find their answers in Jesus. And so we want to be about that. And because we haven't changed, we thought it'd be great to celebrate our birthday the way that we used to in those first five years, which was by starting our major series for the year on that day. Because each year that we would do that was kind of a demonstration that the Word of God is what we're centered on. And we wanted that to mark the agenda for the whole year. And so this year we're starting the book of Acts, and we're starting in Acts 1 today. And it matters because Acts is all about, and Acts 1 in particular, is all about what Jesus' church should be about. This week I've been over in Adelaide, and I learned some things. One of the things I learned is that if you have somewhere important to be and you need to be there on time, don't go with a budget airline. 
You might get a bonus night in Adelaide, but it's not going to help you to be on time to anything. So I learned that. That was a hard lesson. I also learned that the term peak hour has a very wide semantic range. In Sydney, peak hour is kind of synonymous with maybe parking lot or anxiety. In Adelaide, it's just a time of day. There's no more or less traffic than any other time in that day, but it's called peak hour. I learned the other thing I learned over there is that the answer to the question in Adelaide, how far, is always, always, always 10 to 15 minutes. Everything is 10 to 15 minutes away. And it proves to be like reasonably accurate. But the other thing I learned, or at least re-remembered, was that Adelaide was known as, and see if you can finish this sentence for me, Adelaide was known as the city of church. Yeah, I didn't know how many people knew that. It's known as the city of churches. But it's actually a misnomer. It's not the city of churches. It's actually the city of church buildings. There's an unusually high amount of church buildings, but the large majority of them are either empty, repurposed, or nearly empty. And I don't know if back in the day these churches were filled with vibrant, Christ-following churches or not, but the fact stands today that Adelaide actually in many ways is more of a, a memorial or even a graveyard of churches. And in some ways in that way it becomes a bit of a symbol for Western cities all over the world where the gospel has actually been declining, where people are less likely to profess religion maybe of any kind, but particularly of Christianity. And this has accelerated over recent years, particularly in countries like the United States with COVID and with churches being shut down for a time. But it is the case across the Western world, not across the whole world, but particularly in Western countries and cities, that Christianity has been in decline for a number of years. And so there's lots of talk, particularly at the moment, around strategies of, of how churches are to turn this around. There's banter like um, churches, what people want is authenticity which I think is the least insightful thing to say. That just to be authentic or to be truthful is probably a better way to say it, is a very low bar to jump over. But it's, you know, it's kind of understandable. I guess what they mean is a move away from big, showy, kind of, I don't know, uh, kind of gig-style churches to, you know, to something more real. The other talk is about the future is hybrid church. It's got to be online church. And we happen to be online this week, and it's given me a bit of PTSD from back to COVID days. But everyone's like, that, that's the future, is online church. And there's all this talk about strategies and trusting in them, like this is going to be the silver bullet. But the truth is, the church is to be about what it's always been about from the start. And that when the church has grown over history, it's not because it tried something especially that new, but it went back to the basics of trusting Jesus and his power to build his own church. And ultimately, what we're going to see in this passage is that the only thing that followers of Jesus are called to do or to be is witnesses. That we're to witness that there is a God who lives, who died on our behalf, and who rose again, and now has the power to give eternal life to all who believe in Him. And the call of the church is merely to witness to this truth and to see God work. That we witness and He works in power. And so I'm going to pray that as we open this passage that we would see this more clearly than ever. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the living God, the author of life, and the one who sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, that we might find forgiveness and healing and renewal in him. And we pray that we'd see more clearly than ever that it is not about us, 
that this story, the story of you calling people from every tribe, nation and tongue to yourself, is the story of your power at work in frail people like us. So we pray that you would increase our trust in you and our love for you. Amen. Well, the first sentence of the book of Acts lays out what it's all about. Come with me to Acts 1, sentence 1, when Luke, the author, writes this. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke is the author of a book in the Bible called, funnily enough, Luke. Not a particularly creative title, but it's helpful. And this is the second volume now. So he's written one work that details Jesus' birth, his life, his teaching, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And now we've got part two, the book of Acts. And here he starts by addressing this guy called Theophilus, who we don't know much about. We don't know whether Theophilus kind of commissioned Luke to actually put together a volume about Jesus' life and to, to lay it down historically and accurately. But we know that, that, uh, the Paul, uh, that Luke's concern here is to be faithful to the history and to the account of Jesus' life and ministry and now to what happens after he is risen. We also know that Luke himself was friends with another apostle named Paul, that Luke was a physician, a doctor, so he was a learned man. And he is very particular in laying out dates and times and places so that these accounts about Jesus can be historically verified. And the purpose, he says here, is that he says, in the first volume, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do. And so the book of Acts is actually about all that Jesus is going to continue to do. We call the book of Acts Acts because primarily it's been called the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But again, that's not an accurate title. It's not so much the central character is not the apostles, not least because they're not the only ones who do stuff in this book, but most of all because it's really about the risen Lord Jesus conducting his mission and empowering his people through his Holy Spirit. This book is ultimately about Jesus and his continuing reign. The book of Luke was about Jesus' ministry on earth. The book of Acts is about Jesus' ministry from heaven as he sends the gospel out to the nations. And that's why we get this next section in 3 to 10. Come with me there. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus rises from the dead. This is the central miraculous claim of the Scriptures, that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, there's no reason to trust or hope in him. But the account here is that he has risen from the dead and he takes his disciples and he teaches them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And after all that time, they ask him the question, Jesus, is this the time when you're going to restore Israel? They were Jewish men. They were hoping that there'd be a time when the nation of Israel would not be under Roman oppression. And so they're asking Jesus, is this the time when you're going to do that? 
And Jesus instead said, look, don't worry about dates and times and all of that stuff. Just worry about this. Wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you do, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then the surrounding area of Judea, then the further north area of Samaria, and then to speed it up, he just says, and then to the end of the earth. That awaits for power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. Now, strange, a, a witness doesn't actually have to do much, do they? Earlier this week, and this is, I promise this is my last Adelaide illustration, but it's just, it's, you know, it's fresh in the mind. The, almost, maybe it's only a couple of hours after we arrived there in the city, we, we witnessed something significant. We saw a police car with its sirens on moving pretty quickly, and it pulled up, and then we could just hear shouting and someone running. And of course, everyone in the city is just like, fixed on this moment. No one's, no one's giving them any privacy. Everyone has just has stopped what they're doing and they're watching this unfold. And so the police chase this guy down and end up arresting him. And when that happened, I turned to my dad and I said, Adelaide, more like Badelaide, am I right? I didn't, but in hindsight, I really wish I did. And so hopefully I'll be back in Adelaide sometime soon and I'll get another crack at that. But in that moment, it was, it was interesting because no one really knew what was going on. And I realized in that moment as well that if I was to be asked about it, my one job would be to give a truthful account of it. That if you have witnessed something, that the one thing you are required to do if you were to testify in court is to testify truthfully and accurately. When Jesus says to his people, you are to be my witnesses, it's significant because he's saying, you're, you're not to be my workers. Their job is not to rule by political power and build the kingdom of God that way. Their job is not to build temples and shrines and sort of have cultural influence in that way. That's not the way that the kingdom of God will spread. Not only that, they're not to spread it through performing rituals. No, he says the one thing that will spread the kingdom of God is for you to be witnesses. Witnesses of the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus. You're to tell everyone what I've done. That Jesus has risen from the dead. That Jesus died in our place for our sin. They're to testify truthfully and accurately to what has happened. And as they do that, God will supply the power to change lives and even change the world. And so with that, you kind of think, well, if all you have to do, if all he's calling his people to do is to witness, and all they have to do is just say what they saw truthfully and accurately and testify to that, why would they need this supernatural power? Why would they need God, the Holy Spirit, living in them to empower them to do that? That is, anyone can really do that. Well, the reason for it is that Jesus knows that they will face pressure, that they will face persecution, and they will be tempted to change the message or to not speak about the message. And that's what happens almost immediately in the book of Acts. We see that Peter and some of the other apostles, as they're testifying and witnessing about Jesus, they get beaten up. And then the religious officials who don't like them talking about Jesus and spreading this message say to them, hey, just so you know, if you keep doing this, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be beaten up, you might even be killed. And Peter, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, responds by saying, look, basically, you can do what you want to us, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then in that moment, the Spirit gives them boldness in the face of violence to say, fine, but we have to witness to what we've seen and we have to tell people, you can do what you're going to do, but we're going to keep speaking about Jesus. 
This is how the kingdom of God was spread. As faithful witnesses hold fast to the message and pass it on to the next generation. And that's why Jesus does what he does next. In Acts 1, 9 to 11, look what happens. It says, And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. If you ever wanted a killer way to finish a speech, this is it. You might be able to drop a mic, but you'll never drop a mic like the Son of God. He gives a speech telling them to go to the ends of the earth and then just basically disapparates. He's gone. He's out of there. But the reason this is not that jarring for the disciples is because he has told them again and again that this is what will happen. See, while Jesus was on earth, he could minister to a small group of people, but he would promise them time after time after time. He said, I'm not going to be with you forever. I'm going to go to my heavenly Father, and after that I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he'll be the one who guides and leads you on this mission. And so Jesus ascends, and they wait for the Holy Spirit. And the whole rest of the book of Acts is a testimony of how Jesus from heaven, by his Holy Spirit, continues this mission. And as, they, as the church faithfully witnesses. Because the truth is, if you are here and a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a witness. You are called to testify about Jesus to, and what he has done to those who have never heard of him or haven't responded to him. And you might think, well, surely this is just for the apostles who were there. But we see it play out in the book of Acts. When persecution breaks out in Jerusalem, what happens? The apostles stay in Jerusalem. And the people flee for safety and they go to all the other regions and we're told while they're there, they spread the gospel. And the gospel continues to spread and Jesus adds to the number of the church day by day and week by week. It wasn't just apostles, it was every disciple making disciples. It was every follower of Jesus witnessing to Jesus and what he has done and his goodness and the forgiveness that can be found in him. Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses and I'll give you the power to do it by the Holy Spirit. But then Acts chapter 1 takes kind of a weird turn. You may be familiar with this, this chapter in the Bible. We didn't read through this section just before. But after all of this, kind of setting up the whole mission and trajectory of, this, of the book of Acts, we get this almost weird kind of detour. We're told that the men and women were together and were united and were devoting themselves to prayer every day. And there was this deep unity in the church. And on one of these days, in these prayer meetings... Peter gets up before all of them. And look what he says in Acts 1, 15 to 20. It says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was about 120. And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and fell headlong and he burst in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that this field was called in their own language Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So after explaining this story of Judas who was their close friend who had betrayed Jesus, they then go and say, look, we need someone to take his place. 
And the way they do it is by basically flipping a coin or casting lots was what they did back in the day. They pray, they flip a coin, and then Matthias is chosen as this 12th apostle. But then after that, we don't really hear from Matthias again. He becomes like with the moon landing, there's you know, uh, Armstrong and then Buzz Aldrin and then the other guy. He just becomes the other guy. He just really doesn't come up again. And it's a strange part of the story because why would you do this big introduction and explain how this person came to be one of the apostles only to then basically never mention him again? Imagine in a movie watching a long introduction of a character only for them to never show up in the movie again. It would be very kind of indie, but that's not really what he's kind of getting at here. Now the reason he is doing this is because what happened with Judas was kind of like an open wound for the disciples. That it was something that needed to be dealt with. Imagine how crushed they would have been to know that among them, a close group of 12 friends, that one of them was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Imagine how shocked they would have been by it. Imagine how much self-doubt would have kicked in. Thinking like, how could we have not possibly known that he was going to betray Jesus, our leader, to the religious authorities? And it needed to be dealt with. And so here, Peter gets up, feeling compelled to speak about it. And he says to the disciples, and quotes scripture, saying, Look, this wasn't outside of God's plan. That actually God's mission was not derailed by this. That actually God used this in bringing about the death of Jesus that would atone for the sins of the world. That God wasn't up in heaven scrambling for a backup plan because Judas mucked it all up. But that he actually knew. And part of this is them getting closure about this and wrapping it up and now replacing someone in the fold and getting ready to go forward on the mission together. And the reason this is there right after this commission, sending the church out, is the reminder that even though Jesus will be in charge of his mission and he reigns over all, and even though he'll empower his church by the Holy Spirit, it will not mean that if you follow Jesus that your life will be free from suffering or pain. In fact, to follow Jesus on his mission will involve precisely experiencing both the power of the gospel and pain. And I'd say over the history of City Light, we've felt both. We've experienced both power and pain as we've followed Jesus on mission. There were the early days where everything just seemed to work. Where, you know, Gav had gotten a call out of the blue to get basically a free building in Balmain. In, not just Sydney, but in Balmain, right? To start a church ministry. And where people were just joining every week. I think we had three different small groups in our first year at City Light. It was just one after the other after the other. And things that just felt like we could do no wrong. You could see God working in so many different ways. Almost all the small groups had someone who had just recently come to faith. We've experienced over these years so much of God's power at work and the transforming power of the gospel. But we've also felt the pain of it. That over our history we tried to plan a campus and it didn't work. And that was really painful for everyone involved. There have been other times where we've had to say gospel goodbyes for good reasons, when people move away. Many of you here, part of the joy of seeing you again was that at one point we had to say goodbyes. We sent people off. But at other times it can be that people have left with difficulty or hurt, sometimes unjustifiably, but sometimes even justifiably, when we haven't loved well or followed Jesus like we should. And this story is here at the beginning of the Gospel of Acts as a reminder that following Christ will mean experiencing the power of the Gospel and seeing it at work, but also as you do that, there will be pain and difficulty. And the pressure will be to shrink back, to change the message, 
or to just not tell anyone about it or to not take any more risks or to just play it safe. And if we do that, we would definitely experience less pain, but you also experience less power. We'll miss seeing the power of the gospel to change lives. We'll miss seeing the power of the gospel as it goes out and people have their lives turned around. And the truth is that even now we can see that this power is demonstrably real in the world. That despite all the grim news of the decline of the church in the West, that the gospel is going out to the nations just like Jesus said it would 2,000 years ago. We actually do live in unprecedented times. I heard from a missiologist this week, uh, Andy Bird, that we are the first generation to wake up in the morning knowing that there are Bible-believing Christians in every geopolitical nation on earth. And that has not always been the case. This is the first period in history that that has been true. We wake up in a world where the fastest-growing church in the world is in Iran. The second to that is likely Afghanistan. And other areas potentially contending for that would be Bhutan, Nepal, maybe even northern India. And 20 to 30 years ago, these were unreached areas. Not only that, but the gospel is going out in unprecedented ways. That in, in Mission Talk, a, a people group is considered to be unreached when less than 2% of the population are Bible-believing Christians. Because at that point, the church doesn't have the sufficient resources in itself to continue to grow and expand. And a, and a people group is described as unengaged when there is not a single known believer, church, or missionary in that people group or trying to reach that people group. And in 2000, there were 3,158 people groups that were described as unengaged. That is not a single Christian, not a church, and no, one, no missionary about to go there and to engage that people. And so a group called, got together called Finish the Task, and got mission organizations together to kind of divide up these people groups. And over that 20-year period, the number of unengaged dropped from 3,158 to 144. And that since dropped again to 109. Which means that within this decade, within our lifetime, sorry, it's potentially the case that the last known people groups, over 500 people, Will, be in, will have been engaged, and potentially at some point in our lifetime, we may see Jesus praised in every known tongue on earth. This is the power of the gospel, going out to the ends of the earth, and the work is not done. Because if those kind of stats make it sound like, oh, it's nearly finished, there are still 3.2 billion people who have never heard the name Jesus. And so what's next? Well, our call is to be faithful witnesses and to trust that God will work powerfully through his people. And that means for us in Balmain, there are 40,000 people on this peninsula, let alone within the inner west. We're called to be faithful witnesses, to love Christ, to lay down our lives, to demonstrate and to live the way that Christ has called us to, to love and look after the poor and the marginalized, to love and serve like Jesus loved and served and to witness to the fact that there is a God in heaven who came down to earth and shed his blood on our behalf. The reason that we want to be a growing, healthy, multi-generational church is not that we might be able to point to us, but to point to Jesus and his transforming work through the gospel. And our prayer over this next decade is that we would be that. And for those of you who are here and going back to churches elsewhere in Australia, that you too would be faithful witnesses there. You take it upon yourself to share the gospel in your context 
with other Christians, fellow believers who love and cherish Jesus, that we might again be a part of God's global purpose. But our prayer also over this next decade is that we might be able to be a part of God's global mission in a unique way. That from our midst, there are people right now who are considering what the next steps are in going to the ends of the earth to reach people potentially even who are unreached or to engage people who haven't heard the gospel before. And so we'd love for you to be praying for us as we go about this, that over the next decade we'd be on about what we've always been on about, which is Jesus, but that as we do that we might see fruit like we see in the book of Acts. I want to finish just by sharing this quote from J. Campbell White. He says this, Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purposes toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure and riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfilment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of it, are getting out of life its sweetest and most precious rewards. May it all be for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a missionary God, that you call us to be faithful witnesses, but you don't leave us as orphans in the world, but you give us your Holy Spirit to empower, to embolden, and to encourage. And Father, we just pray that we would demonstrate the love of Christ in the way that we love one another and those around us, and that we would share the gospel knowing that you are worthy, that you are the God of love and grace, that you are the God in whom people can find forgiveness and transformation and healing, and that all of this would be for your glory.